The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Morning to you, Trinidad and Tobago. Welcome to Human Impact on Freedom 106.5 FM. And as we start this session, doctors on call for the hour. Let's go straight to it. Hello, good morning, Dr. Nadia Rambukas. Good morning. Good morning, Tosca. It's Nadira, actually. Nadira, my apologies. Good morning. I have a special guest. I have Professor Vijay Narain Singh. He's from Medical Associates St. Joseph. And I just want to briefly introduce him because his um his expertise, his resume, his CV is extensive. So good morning, listeners, and good morning, Professor Narain Singh. Good morning. So, uh, Professor Narain Singh first had his BSc first class honors in anatomy in 1971. He did his MBBS from the University of West Indies in 1974. He has fellowship from the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh in 1978, fellow of the International College of Angiology in 1983, fellow of the International College of Surgeons in 1984, Fellow of the American College of Surgeons in 1987. He's also a Shikonia Gold Medal recipient in 1991. He is as well a Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of England in 2003, Fellow of the Caribbean College of Surgeons 2004. He's an Honorary Fellowship for the American College of Surgeons in 2019 and has the Honorary Fellowship of the Association of Surgeons of India in 2021. He has over 168 presentations with over 378 academic publications, and he has been involved in numerous charities and community service throughout the country. So he has his own website, actually. I just summarized. <laughs> so Professor Narain's in quite an extensive career. How long have you been practicing medicine and what was your motivation for choosing vascular surgery in particular? Well, I don't know that I chose, first of all, um, you just said that I graduated in 1974, which means 2024 June will make me 50 years graduated. Right. From, uh, so, so, so I'm in my 50th year, um, which is quite exciting because I'm still working as hard as ever and enjoying it. Now, your question about why I chose vascular surgery, I think it chose me uh, because I finished my, my FRCS very quickly, much quicker than usual, and I had, so to speak, extra time. And I... One second, could you tell us what FRCS is? Oh, FRCS is the specialist degree that you do for surgery, which that's in England. It's a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. I did mine in Edinburgh, and then about 20 years later, the other college granted me the, 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 the degree without examination. So I have two FRCSs, one, one granted without exam. So anyway, um, 
this thing about why I chose vascular, I think it shows me because I finished my specialty very early and I kind of had spare time and I said I should do something else. And I actually applied to do plastic surgery. I went to meet the most famous plastic surgeon who in the Caribbean who was based in uh, Jamaica. And I just went to meet him and I walked in and he said, um, why you want to do plastic surgery? I said, it looks so exciting. And he said, listen, young man, unless you're prepared to spend half your time doing psychiatry, you should do something else. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in long and short of it, and, and then there was a Trinidadian um, who was an outstanding vascular surgeon in America, Alistair Carmody, he won the Jerningham gold medal from Trinidad, I think in the 1950s. And he, he was willing to take me to train. So it was kind of automatic when you had somebody from your country showing an interest in having you train. So that's how I ended up in Albany, New York to do vascular. So I did my general surgery in Britain and I did my vascular surgery in America. So could you tell that's us it. what exactly is the vascular system? What is its function? And what exactly do you see in your practice? I mean, Lydia? Anyway, you're hearing me. Yes, I'm, I'm hearing you. We lost you a little bit there, yes. I, I was asking what is exactly is the vascular system and how it functions and what do you see in your practice with respect to vascular disorders? Okay, now that's a very loaded question, but let's simplify it. You know, everybody is talking about circulation. Are your circulation good or your circulation bad? And I would like your listeners to just imagine circulation in the, let's say your arm, blood is going down the arm, down to the palm area, and then coming back up. So it's circulating down arteries and back up veins. So down arteries, back up veins, same in the leg, down arteries and back up veins. So that's circulation. So usually people come and they say they have a circulation problem. That's the common statement that's made. So if somebody has a circulation problem, it's either in the blood vessels going down, which is the arteries, or the blood vessels bringing blood back up, which are the veins. Uh, of course, arterial disease is extremely common. That's how people get heart attacks. Those are diseases of the arteries. Um, strokes, diseases of the arteries. But commonly, what we see a lot of too is varicose veins, which is the commonest disorder of the veins. So we have diseases of arteries and veins, all of which come under the specialty of vascular surgery. There are also disorders of the lymphatic system, and that's a little more complex. I don't necessarily want to go there, but um, people who get swelling of the limb or, or elsewhere, that's due to inadequate drainage of fluid. But I think for this purposes of today, we probably could confine ourselves to the arteries and the veins. The veins, of course, being the more common, but the arteries being the more important, meaning they're the ones that cause heart attacks. They're the ones that cause you to lose your leg and have amputations and so on. Those are the ones that cause strokes because we do vascular surgery for strokes as well. So uh, both sides of the circulation, the arterial side and the venous side, and we see a fair amount of both. 
<clears throat> Could you explain exactly how varicose veins are formed? What exactly are they? And um, how can we prevent them? Now, that's a simple yet a difficult question. Let me see. As I said, blood is going down the leg and blood is coming back up the veins, is going down the arteries and coming back up the veins. But the veins have valves that allow only one-way flow. If blood tries to flow back down a vein, the valve will shut. So every time we stand up, the veins don't distend because they are valves preventing backflow. So when you get valves that are what you call incompetent or valves that are leaking or valves that are not functioning, and when you stand up, blood is flowing back down the vein. We now have a situation where arteries are pumping blood down and the veins allowing blood to go back down. And the pressure in the vein increases significantly, particularly when you're standing erect. And even worse, when you're not moving, like our solium might just be standing one place and the pressure going down the veins would cause them to one, distend, so they get um, larger than normal. And then long enough with that distension, they start to become tortuous and uh, that's when they become, as we say, varicose. So varicose veins really are almost always due to incompetent valves. Of course, there are other reasons which are quite uncommon um, of, of back pressure on the veins due to tumors or obstruction and things like that. But by and large, it's almost always due to, to valvular incompetence. So when we see somebody with varicose veins, instead of just going to do something about it, we first have to find out where the valves are leaking. And they, these days it's easy to tell because there is a test, a duplex scan, which is really an ultrasound, absolutely painless. And we can see where the valves are leaking and we can therefore decide what's the best way to fix it. And they almost always fixable, uh, so to speak. So. And, and there are many ways of fixing it. These days we can fix it without cutting. We can fix it by endovascular means, by radiofrequency ablation or laser therapy and all sorts of things. So it's important to find out where the leak is. It's also fairly easy to fix the leak. Right. The one catch here though is a lot of patients wait very long and they come when the veins are huge and tortuous. And, and they already start to get skin discoloration or even ulceration. Then it's so late that the success, although we can stop the leaks, the tissues are already permanently irreversibly damaged. So that makes it difficult for them to get good results. So my advice, if you have varicose veins that you're a little concerned about, don't leave it until you start to get skin changes that are irreversible. Uh, even when we treat it successfully. Um, are varicose veins genetic? Does it have to do um, with standing and sitting for prolonged? At some point, is it reversible or can we prevent it from getting worse, like wearing stockings or taking medication? Right. <clears throat> now, the cause. First of all, women get it more than men you probably notice that women get a lot more varicose veins than men and when men get it it's often and commonly genetic meaning that they have a familial predisposition women um 
they can have varicose veins starting in pregnancy, for example, where they have this distended belly producing extra pressure on the veins and they start to be, become tortuous. Uh, you get from prolonged standing, as you correctly said. Uh, you could get it more commonly in the overweight as well. So varicose veins, and they can start at, at, at young age. You know, you can get teenagers with varicose veins, but you get it more in people in their 30s plus. Uh, and they may be unilateral, meaning affecting one leg only, or they may be both sides. So when we see somebody, those are the things we look for. Are they overweight? Uh, do they have skin changes? Is it unilateral? Is it bilateral? Is it affecting more than one system? Like there's a long saphena system, the one that starts in the groin and goes down the leg. And the short saphena is one that starts behind the knee. And we look for those and something called perforators. The fact is we just have to assess this patient and um, we can fix it, as I said, most times. So in some of those veins, because blood pools, uh, are there risk of getting blood clots? Of course. Of course, the, the risk of clots there, uh, because it's pooling, like you say, you know, it's like uh, if you if you stop the flow of blood, whether in the arterial or the venous system, it tends to clot. Blood has to be flowing generally for it not to clot. So if you stop the flow for any reason or you impede the flow, because in varicose veins there is flow, but the flow is sluggish as the, as the blood works its way through this tortuous things like a river, you have a straight river just flowing compared to a wavy, tortuous river, uh, you get a slower flow. When the flow is slower, the propensity to clotting is much higher. But when they clot, remember the varicose veins. If you look at varicose veins, you can see it. It's right there under the skin. You can see it. So we call that a superficial uh, vein because the, the veins of the leg and of the limbs are are superficial or deep. The ones we don't see are the deep ones. So mm -hmm. the superficial ones, which is what we're talking about, varicose veins, it can become painful and tender and swollen, and you can see a reddish uh, reaction around the inflamed vein, and there are clots in the vein. Now that is called a superficial thrombophlebitis. It's very important because a superficial thrombophlebitis is not going to have clots that will move to your heart and lungs and kill you. Whereas the deep venous thrombosis, so clots in the deep veins are generally bigger and they more, they have a greater propensity to move to the heart and lungs. And those can be fatal by something called pulmonary embolism, where the clot moves up and goes straight up by the heart and blocks the blood flow to the lungs and you can die. So, People who have varicose veins should not have the fear that if they develop a clot, that they're going to die from it. That's not life-threatening. The deep vein thrombosis is life-threatening, but what they get is usually a superficial thrombophlebitis. So one must distinguish between those two. And um, But still, whether you get a superficial thrombophlebitis or, or it's, uh, you, you should certainly get advice on what to do about it. Right. So, so, so that's how it works. Now you ask about support stocking. Sorry, I didn't. You ask about support stocking and flavonoids. I think. Yes. Now, the support stockings definitely, you know, because you are standing, and blood is tending to pool. 
And if you can imagine that your leg is firmly bandaged uh, and blood can't pool, then it, the veins will not dilate and become um, varicose. So uh, varicose vein stockings, though, they are very good for people with varicose veins or what we call venous insufficiency. But the strength that you need, because they are classes, class one or class is, uh, is important because you don't want something very... Professor, I think your, your service is giving a little trouble. Can you hear us? I think we can take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Professor Vijayanarayan Singh about varicose veins and your treatment. No problem. This is Freedom 106.5 FM. I'm going to take a short break. And when we come back, more with the doctors. For healthy skin, reach for Cetaphil. For over 70 years, Cetaphil has been committed to advancing skin science to provide the best sensitive skin care solutions, partnering closely with dermatologists and healthcare professionals. Cetaphil ensures the safety and efficacy of their products for your skin, from facial cleansers and moisturizers to body care and baby care. Cetaphil is loved by skin. Cetaphil the number one doctor recommended sensitive skincare brand. And we're back with Dr. Rambokas. Good morning. Thank you, Tosco. And I want to welcome back Professor Narain Singh. I think you just have to unmute your mic. And he was oh, yes. talking a little bit about compression stockings and flavonoids medication that we use for varicose veins. Right. The first thing is, that, as I said, the support stockings. You need a prescription about the strength of support stocking, how tight it should be. The second, you, your prescription should also say the level of the support stocking, meaning should it be below knee, should it be above knee, should it be pantyhose, for example, uh, and open toe or closed toe, etc. So that's one thing about the support stocking. About uh, And those are very good for people who cannot have surgery or people who have edema, meaning swelling of the legs, even after surgery or, or before surgery, if surgery is not indicated. Now, the flavonoids is a lot more complex. Uh, you know, flavonoids is one of these group of um, drugs or medication or naturally occurring substances that's supposed to have anti-cancer, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. It's kind of good for everything, you know, that kind of thing. I just think it's good for everything because it has a it's a strong it's a plant-based thing to a large extent and it's in fresh fruit and vegetable and lettuce and so on. So, but as a medication specifically for varicose veins, I can't say that I find it's remarkable. It's good because it's healthy stuff, but I don't know though that I would prescribe it specifically for varicose veins. So, so the, the medication for varicose veins exists, you know, probably you see people on um, Glyvanol and, and so on, Daflon and so on. Um, I still think the role of those things, um, 
the role is limited, but um, there may be a place, but a very limited place in my view. But I, I love the sports talking story that gives good support for the beans. Yes, sorry. That's okay. At what point would you say surgical intervention is necessary and it's required? And what procedures do you offer and would be best depending on, does it depend on the patients and where the location of the veins are? Yeah, all of those are factors. Now, first, the first thing about varicose veins is it generally is not life-threatening and it's not limb-threatening. The people who lose legs from varicose veins must constitute less than maybe 0.5% of people who lose legs. So the, the limb loss is not an issue. The, uh, the life loss is not an issue. The issue is quality of life, because if your leg is swollen, if your leg is painful, if your leg is ulcerated, like you have a sore there that is oozy and smelly and so on, uh, those are things that you should address. Now, there are many patients who walk around with varicose veins for 30, 40 years, walk around with it until they die, actually, and never bother with it, and they're okay. But I like to advise treating varicose veins when we, if we start to see skin changes. If somebody doesn't want intervention at all, and they came and they said, look, I don't want anything done, I will tell them, fine, that's okay. But if I see skin changes, whether it's discoloration, impending ulceration, induration, I will tell them, listen, that's okay if you don't want to treat it, but I must warn you that you're heading towards breakdown of the skin where you may have a non-healing ulcer for the next 20 years. And you probably know somebody in the village who walking around with them, every time you see them, they have this bandage on the leg because they have an ulcer there that they can't heal. So I would say you must insist or strongly advise treatment for people who start to get skin changes. For people who don't have skin changes, then the treatment is to a large extent um, cosmetic. Of course, if they have swelling, that's another good reason for treating. You don't want to walk around with one shoe that is tight, tight because it's, um, it's swelling in that leg and the other leg is normal and so on and a lot of discomfort. So swelling is another reason why you should have something done. So skin changes and swelling. And pain is not very common. And if they get pain at all, the pain is generally a dull ache rather than an incapacitating pain. It's not a pain that limits to any significant extent what they do, unless they get the, the, the superficial thrombophlebitis we spoke about, where you develop a clot in the vein and becomes swollen and painful. So the patients I advise are those, as I said, with skin changes, those with swelling, and those with impending ulceration, or those who already have ulceration, because the best chance of healing the ulcer is treating the vein, because the vein caused the ulceration in the first place. Right. And what treatment options do you offer, and which is probably best? <laughs> now, which is best? depends on depends on where the leaks are <clears throat> now let's say let's go general generally you can have surgery 
where we tie off where the leaks are and we remove these large tortuous veins. Or you can, you can seal off the leak. For example, we can pass, let me use for lay people, we can use something like a wire, like a guitar wire. We stick it in the vein and we tread it up while looking at it on, a, on, a, um, on an ultrasound, tread it up to where the leak is. So now we have a little wire going up to where the leak is. And then we put an energy through that wire, whether it's a laser energy or it's a radio frequency. And as we withdraw the wire, this vein, which is like a macaroni, as you withdraw the wire, the macaroni shrivels and becomes like a spaghetti. So blood cannot flow back down it. So radio frequency ablation and laser treatment is a form of treatment where we can pass a wire up the vein to the site of leakage and as we withdraw it seal off that vein so that's a non -in, it's invasive but it's, it's a non-surgical way of treating it it has a very good success rate depending on where the leak is it's good for leaks up by the groins of phenofemoral junction um, there are perforators though that also occur and those can be perhaps better treated by injecting. Now injecting is, is another form of therapy. We inject a sclerosin. So we have the macaroni, we inject something up the macaroni and it shrivels up and becomes like a spaghetti. And that's a sclerosin that will um, destroy the inner lining of the vein and cause it to shrivel up. So you, and then you have surgery. So you have surgery, you have uh, endovascular treatment, and you have uh, sclerotherapy. And, and various forms of sclerotherapy, like those people with spider veins, you probably see every a million people have spider veins. And um, you inject the vein and it shrivels up. Uh, and that's, the spider veins are more cosmetic than anything else. And of course, a lot more common in females and um, there's some hereditary predisposition for spider veins. Uh, so depending on how the vein is, the, that depends on the form of treatment we use or advise you to use. And some of them, when we think it's not going to give us much gain by this, these forms of therapy, we recommend support stockings that will diminish and decrease the risk of ulceration and swelling and the dull aching pain we spoke about. Okay. I'm switching gears a little bit. We're talking about um, venous insufficiency and varicose veins. Um, let us talk a little bit about arterial disease, the blood supplies. What exactly is peripheral arterial disease? And what are some of the symptoms? Okay. Again, let me use some lay language that will make, make life easy. Uh, peripheral arterial disease is like, the blood vessels are like pipes. So you have pipes going down your legs, you have pipe going your arm, pipes going to your brain, pipes going to your heart, carrying blood. In arterial disease, the pipes rust on the inside. So if you're looking at the outside of the pipe, the pipe is looking normal where there's a buildup of rust on the inside. So as the rust is building on the inside, the pipe becomes narrower. And that's what atherosclerosis is on the inside of the blood vessels. We get these layers laid down that 
progressively narrow the vessel. So the vessel becomes progressively narrowed and in fact at some time becomes occluded, completely occluded. But patients develop symptoms usually when they cross a 50 to 70% narrowing, they, start, they may start to have symptoms. And uh, with those warning signs, we should start to think about intervening. Now the warning signs in the leg in particular would be walking, for example, you could comfortably walk quarter mile, now you can only walk 100 yards and then you, you get pain. And that, walk, that pain on, on walking is called claudication. And it usually and most commonly involves the calf muscles. You can get other forms of claudication of the thigh and the buttock and so on, but the commonest site is calf claudication. And that's when the blood vessel that's carrying blood down becomes too narrow to supply enough blood. But you don't get the pain at rest initially because there's enough blood to supply a leg that is not working. But when the leg starts to work on walking and requires more blood, the narrowing doesn't allow it to deliver the blood. When it gets bad enough that you have pain at rest, meaning the blood vessel is blocked and the amount of blood getting down is so little that even at rest, you're having pain. That is quite limb-threatening. You are about to lose your legs, so to speak, and we call that critical ischemia, where we really have to intervene if we are to save the leg. Also, people who have limb-threatening ischemia may also have gangrene. You may notice a, a, a little black spot at the tip of a toe or the whole toe or something like that, and that's, um, that's gangrene. And then you have non-healing ulcers. You may have an ulcer at the ankle or on the foot or on a toe that's just not healing because it's not getting enough blood to heal. So those are the things we look for, those three classical features, which is rest pain, non-healing ulcer, and gangrene. Those are the three classical uh, limb-threatening conditions that the patient should be aware of. And we should... When we see that, we should assess the vascularity of the leg and determine if this needs intervention. We don't take the idea of intervention lightly because when we start to interfere with your blood vessels, with your arteries, there are risks to interference. It is not a simple matter. And a vessel doesn't rust in one place. If all the vessels... Hello? Yes, we're hearing you, Prof. I believe that um, Professor has a little communication issue, so we're going to take a little short commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about peripheral artery disease and leg ulcers. You. Yes. yes, you. You can create wealth. No, I don't mean riches. I mean wealth. I'm talking about being financially assured, leaving a legacy for the grandkids you don't have yet, because you're a single kind of wealth. I mean seeing into the future and feeling assured kind of wealth. Now I have your attention. Good. Now talk to the folks at Republic Wealth Management about their range of retirement and investment products. Wealth suits you. Start creating it now. Log on to republicwealthmanagement.com or talk to us today. Get your business on board with Republic ePay. Go digital and start accepting online payments without the need for a website. Sign up today on republictt.com slash ePay. 
every day, millions of people looking for healthy skin reach for Cetaphil. For over 70 years, Cetaphil has been committed to advancing skin science to provide the best sensitive skincare solutions, partnering closely with dermatologists and healthcare professionals. Cetaphil ensures the safety and efficacy of their products for your skin, from facial cleansers and moisturizers to body care and baby care. Cetaphil is loved by skin. Cetaphil, the number one doctor recommended sensitive skincare brand. And we're back with Dr. On Call on, one, on Freedom 106.5 FM with Dr. Rambokas. Good morning to you. Thank you, Tosca. Um, sorry about that, Professor. You were talking about peripheral arterial disease and um, we were wondering at what stage would amputation be necessary? Good. That's a very um, important question because we amputate uh, between 500 and 600 limbs per year in Trinidad, which is a massive amputation rate that's about one and a half per day. So that's a very high amputation rate for a small country like this. And we probably are losing more legs than we need to lose. Now, when the blood flow is impaired, we can, in fact, reconstruct or reconstitute the blood flow by various means. So we have to do something called an arteriogram, where we can see a picture, an x-ray of the blood vessel, and how blood is flowing down, where it's blocked, how bad the block is. Is it a complete block? Is it a narrowing? Are there multiple blocks? And there usually are multiple. Like a, 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 a pipe doesn't rust in one spot, and the other spot is brand new. No. So there are multiple spots. So what the arteriogram will show us how bad the blocks are and how many blocks there are. And then we can plan how to treat this. So it's crucial to identify the block. Now, one thing that patients have to be aware of <clears throat> is that if you come with a bad leg, see, and you're about to have a limb threatening, you have gangrene of a toe or something, it means that the pipes going to your heart the pipes going to your brain, the pipes going to your kidney, the pipes all over are rusting to some extent. You don't have any brand new pipes. If you have a kitchen, if you have a house that is 70 years old and the kitchen pipe is rusty and breaking off or leaking, it doesn't mean that the pipe in the bedroom is new just because it's not leaking. So when a patient has a leg problem that is vascular, we have to look at their heart and their brains and the kidneys uh, when we're planning treatment. Because we can go and fix the leg and the patient dies of a heart attack, or we fix the leg and the patient has a stroke and is, is bed bound, paralyzed for the rest of their life and so on. So the thorough investigation of such a case is important before we actively go and tackle the leg. But we need to, to of course, tackle the leg, otherwise the patient will lose the leg. So we have to restore blood flow to such a leg and there are various ways. Just like I said about putting a wire down, we can put a wire down, so to speak, the uh, vessel to the narrow point and then blow up a balloon and stretch it open. And that's called angioplasty. But if you stretch open a narrowed vessel, it may collapse back if it's a hard narrowing, not a pliable narrowing. And then if you want it to stay open, you may put a stent, meaning you put something like a metallic 
cylinder on the inside. So you can do angioplasty alone, or you can do angioplasty and stenting to open the blood vessel. And if it's multiple blocks, and depending on where the blocks are, one may need to do bypass surgery, where we leave the blocked pipe. I want you to imagine a pipe in your yard, and it's blocked, and we know where the block is. So we expose that, but we leave the block pipe there, and we take a new pipe and join it from above the block to beyond the block. That's called bypass, because we bypass the block. And that's why you hear about coronary bypass for heart disease and so on. And we do a lot of lower limb bypasses. We do aortic bypasses. We did one just last week here where the blood vessel in the belly is blocked, the aorta, and we bypass the aorta using a graft and so on. And for the vessels below the groin, we usually use vein. So just like how to use the vein from your leg to, to, to do bypass to the heart, we can use the vein from the leg to do bypasses in the leg itself. So there are lots we can do, and there are lots of legs we can save that we currently lose, unfortunately. But it does require a lot of concentrated effort and a lot of good facilities, because you have to have arteriography, you have to have the availability of angioplasty and of stenting and of bypass surgery and so on. So there are a lot of components that go into success uh, in, in, in preventing limb loss. Uh, the good news is that, that they're all available locally, for sure. And um, we just have to get it going. Do you have any idea about the rate of amputations that is in Trinidad? And uh, is it higher than worldwide or global statistics? Okay. Well, you're asking the right person because the first study done on amputations in Trinidad was done by me about 40 years ago. And at that time, we were amputating about 250 legs per year. We are now gone over 500. So in 40 years, we have more than doubled our amputation rate. The second point about that is that um, in the last seven or eight years, not counting last year, and not counting 2022, we did a study, a seven-year study before that, and we, we had upped our amputation rate by about 50, 15% in that in that short period. So the amputation rate is rising, sadly. And it may have to do with increasing diabetes, increasing obesity, increasing poor control of diabetes. And um, also there is a, a, um, a failure on our part as, um, as, as, a, as a service of providing all the facilities readily. You know, like in many hospitals, you don't have an arteriogram, or you know, you don't have duplex scanning uh, and so on, and non-invasive vascular laboratory testing. So, or you may not have angioplasty, or you may not have stenting and so on. So we have a problem really that needs to be addressed, um, but we can save many more limbs than we are currently losing. Uh, another thing is that people, when they get, because a lot of these, 80% of these are diabetic, when the diabetic has an insensate foot because of neuropathy, there's no sensation, they'll get a choke with a nail or something, or they'll get a cut with a glass bottle or something, and they wouldn't know because they have no sensation. So they walk about with this thing stuck in their foot or the um, cut and not know until several days later when it starts to smell. Sometimes they actually 
diagnose it by smelling it. We had a lady who diagnosed hers by walking and hearing tick, tick, tick every time she walks because she has a thumbtack in her foot. And she's walking about with this and every time she steps, she hears tick and then she stops and she looks around and this ticking stops and she doesn't know what it is. And then she walks again and she hears ticking again and she stops and she looks around. And it's really a thumbtack in the sole of her foot because the foot has no sensation. So, so these are the things we have to live with and people have to understand that um, there are many ways that these things manifest themselves and we have, we have people who have rat bites in the foot. They have no sensation. They lie down there, the rat come and eat in the foot because the foot's sweet because the diabetes is out of control. And they, they have both, both feet. I, I've published to people on that, on, on, on seven feet years of rat bites in diabetic foot. So it's uh, all kinds of things happen to diabetes. The people who go and try to fix the roof and they're walking on the roof barefooted and it's roasting hot on that galvanized and both feet are burning, really burning, burning off all the skin at the foot, peeling off and they don't know because they can walk on coals. They can do magic. Uh, there's no sensation. So, so it's, it's, it's something that we have to get the public aware of for them to understand the reasons why they are at high risk. Uh, they themselves don't know how high their, their risks, but um, we have to do better in terms of educating them and preparing them. Another thing that, 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 that patients don't recognize, let's say you get a little thing on your toe, a little and you they clean out your toe and they put ointments and it gets better. Once you've had an event like that, it means that sometime in the next year you're going to run a life a limb-threatening situation. So when you have an event, I call it a warning event, then you should be thoroughly investigated and and preventative measures taken. You know, and many of them, 70% of them have a warning sign. 70% of people who lose their leg have a warning sign within the previous year that they're running into trouble. Wow. Um, have you seen maggots in feet as well? Cause... Plenty. 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 But you know, maggots are not bad. Uh, they, they look crawly and creepy and, and um, often the foot might be even a little smelly. So crawly, creepy, smelly but they clean off all the dead flesh and in fact there are there is a rule for maggots you can put maggots on a wound if you want to do a debris ma you want to get rid of all the dead stuff and they will eat out all the dead flesh and you get a nice clean foot it's really crawling worms all over it but um, the foot is nice and clean so i don't mind a, a foot with maggots but then we have the at surgery to, of course, go through the, I, I won't say painful process, it's not painful to take out maggots, but um, it's just the tedium and the, uh, how it looks and, you know, uh, so, but maggots, maggots not that bad. <laughs> yeah. So switching gears a little bit, you had mentioned a leg ulcers prior that um, peripheral venous disease is a reason for leg ulcers. Can peripheral arterial disease also um, result in ulcers? And what are the other types of ulcers that that day and their causes? Okay. Now, the 
the venous ulcers are the commonest ulcers for sure and those you those are the ulcers usually occurring around the ankle usually on the medial side of the ankle on the inside of the ankle uh, and the the of the skin that darker than normal because the patient would have had successive bleeds under the skin uh, producing this discoloration. It's a long name lipodermatosclerosis, we call it. And then the skin breaks down. Those ulcers are very difficult to heal. We have to keep cleaning them. And you can even use uh, negative pressure dressings. You can Sometimes we have to put skin grafts on them, uh, elevation, bandaging, and there are a whole set of ointments, all kinds of um, wound care uh, therapy that's available. But if we continue to get the high venous pressure, it's difficult to heal that ulcer. So we have to do something about the high venous pressure that's, that caused the ulceration in the first place. And uh, that is where the interventions come in, the, whether it's endovascular intervention, laser therapy, radiofrequency, or surgery, uh, or injection serotherapy. So there, there's a lot we can do for the venous ulcers, but it requires a lot of patience on the part of the, of the, of the patient, who um, is not going to be he healing really magically and quickly because it took a long time to develop in the first place over many, many years. Um, and now it's not going to disappear very quickly. And I say skin graft is the last option. So we can do all of those things. Now, arterial ulcers are different in pattern. You don't get the arterial ulcers generally. They are the ankle, the theme site is venous ulceration. You can get them down by the toes, you know, commonly down by the toes where the distal most, the furthest point where the blood flow is, is, is the worst. And um, you may get arterial ulcerations anywhere from below the knee usually uh, along, but not the typical venous ulcer site. And the arterial ulcers are often painful, unlike the venous ulcers. Venous ulcers are painful too, but not nearly as painful as the arterial ulcers. The arterial ulcers are so painful that the patient will virtually beg you for treatment and the venous, the arterial ulcers are generally smaller. The venous ulcers could be quite big and still largely painless, just giving you some discomfort. I think that what bothers them a lot about the venous ulcers too is how much oozing you get. So you put on a dressing and the dressing is wet in a couple hours and a bit smelly perhaps. So that's a bit of the tedium in managing uh, venous ulcer. So really a lot should be done to treat the varicose veins before we reach the level of ulceration, because then we have too many irreversible changes. Now the arterial ulcers, I said, um, they will have to be fully investigated. Those would need arteriograms to see where the blockages are, see how to fix it. And we can fix, I think about 90% of patients who have that kind of arterial disease can have it fixed. But again, you need all the components the angiography, the angioplasty, the stenting, the bypass surgery, and so on. And what other type of ulcers do you often encounter in your practice besides venous and arterial ulcers? In Perhaps. fact, there are relatively few that we encounter. Sickle cell disease 
is a common cause of ulceration, but we don't see many here, but we do see some. And I would say that is the commonest apart from apart from ven arterial and venous. Venous is way ahead of the game and arterial. And then we have a lot of traumatic ulcers in diabetics that you get an ulcer usually following trauma and then it gives trouble to heal because they're diabetic. Uh, and they may have both venous and arterial insufficiency. So diabetic ulcers as a separate entity exists, but when you see a diabetic ulcer, we have still have to assess how bad is the uh, venous disease, how bad is the arterial disease, how bad is the diabetes, how bad is the neuropathy. And um, then we take the appropriate measures depending on what we need to do to heal diabetic ulcers. But again, they, they have their own challenges too. So, so these, yeah, go ahead. Pressure ulcers and bed sores. Okay, those generally occur, as you probably know, up by the hip area, whether where the trochanters are on both sides or the sacrum in the middle of the back. We, you do get pressure ulcers, as we're talking about feet, in the heel. When you're lying down, your heel rests on the bed. And if you don't have good sensation or good circulation, that point of the heel where it rests on the bed could give you um, ulceration. And those pressure ulcers are also a common problem. Now, there's a kind of pressure ulceration we call neuropathic ulcers in the diabetic foot, as I mentioned, diabetic. These are people, and it'll happen to you and to me, if you're standing up, say, in a line, and you're just standing there, you will feel a little pressure, say, on the forefoot, and you turn, you move your foot to one side, or you move your foot to the other side. Because that pressure, the, the reason why you're feeling the pain when you stand still without moving is that where the, where the uh, bone is, the bone is resting on the ground and squeezing all the skin and tissue between the ground and the bone. And that tissue is not getting blood flow and that's producing the pain. And then you shift and then you're okay. And the same when you lie down, you lie down in bed or you're sitting like I'm sitting now. If the surfaces are hard surfaces, I'll be leaning to one side, leaning to the other to take pressure of that particular area. But the patient who can't move, who's paralyzed, or the patient who doesn't have good sensation and doesn't know that they have a problem with the circulation, those will keep that sitting in the same position or lying in the same position. The blood flow to the area will not be good and it'll break down and form a bed sore or what we call a pressure ulcer. And you get we get to see a lot of it in the diabetic foot and the sole of the foot usually opposite the first big, the base of the big toe or the base of the little toe are two of the commonest sites. So yeah, we see a lot of those, the neuropathic ulcers. I know you've been practicing a lot, Professor. So when a patient comes to you with a particular type of ulcer, do you automatically know which type it is? And um, what steps do you normally Follow. Is it that you take history and examination, you swab the wound, you do debridement, and then various tasks? Or... Well, that's a, that's um, that's easy to answer. I must say, in that I've seen so many, many feet. I'm talking about tens of thousands of feet. That it is fairly easy now to tell what the diagnosis is, whether it's venous, whether it's arterial, whether it's neuropathic, whether it's sickle and so on. But 
even having done that, even having made what I think is a clear diagnosis of what is going on, I do, in order to give specific treatment and accurate treatment, I'll do the essential tests to establish whether there's vascular insufficiency, whether there's venous insufficiency, it's arterial or, or uh, whatever it is, because we can fix most of them. So it's very important to get the diagnosis accurate and then once we know exactly what it is, it's there, there are a million ways of fixing it, but but it can be fixed most times. Do you uh, subscribe to alternate therapies like herbal medication and so forth that is available? No, <clears throat> that's a loaded question. I'll tell you why I've, I've written about that too. But let's take Popo for example. Popo is valid. Popo has an enzyme called papase that 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 um that's proteolytic that will um get rid of um slough and so on. And um there there used to be an ointment called papase ointment, and there was a um there was a tablet, there was a papase tablet as well in the old days, which I don't think you get nowadays. But is that will help um, ulcer cleaning and ulcer healing and so on. So, but, but the generic thing we have to be careful about, people go and they, they have some ulcer on the foot or they have some symptom and they go and they put, like we see that a lot in diabetics. In fact, we publish a paper on that, that people who do home remedies for diabetic septic foot are one, more likely to lose their leg, two, spend longer in hospital, Three have higher complication rates and bad outcomes, um, and and we've analyzed it prospectively and published that people use soft candle and other potions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soft candle is one of the commonest things they use. So people use a lot of things, um, and that we have the data that establishes clearly what goes on: higher amputation rates, longer hospitalization, and so on. Is it green purple or is it ripe? Well, the one, the ones that were used for the medication, for making the medication, are the green purple. For me, it is purple, but 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 before it's ripe. But um, but papis is a is an important component of the uh, chemical component of purple. Now, honey is used as well, as you probably know. Honey is used in a lot of. I can't remember which one it is, um, but but some of the preparations we have locally actually have honey as part of the um, of the preparation. It's manuka honey and it's El Mazitran that right. is certified um, manuka honey. Right. The, so so they put they put they have honey in in several preparations and um, it is of value. There's no question about that. So what are you currently working on right now, Professor? Because you're always busy, always um, presenting and doing publications. I know your last publication was uh, an aberrant, I think, recurrent laryngeal nerve. Yes, well, the, the recurrent laryngeal nerve does not lie in the tracheoesophageal groove. Um, that was the publication because it was first stated like that in 1543 and that myth has survived for 500 years. So we challenged that myth in a recent publication. But no, and in fact, we're doing more work on the recurrent laryngeal nerve. We're doing um, a lot of, 
Well, I had a meeting yesterday with my research team and we have about five projects running right now. So I, I keep busy. What happened? I want to retire Nadira, but but you young people want want me to work. So I have meetings at two two young ladies, a lot of ladies doing surgery now, a meeting yesterday and all the projects they want to do and so on. So I have to keep working because there are too many bright young people um, that that just, so now, now I, if you notice in the last hundred publications or so, I am hardly ever first daughter, you know, it's these young people running with it. So whereas in my first hundred publications, I, I was the first daughter. Now I'm hardly ever first daughter because I give them the work to do and just guide them. And um, I'm so happy when I see young people doing work that are that, that's so progressive and a lot of them doing work that i can't do either we have a lot of young highly skilled people because of new technology and so on who can do things i can't do so i'm happy i learn a lot from them too so it's exciting a lot going on so professor how can you be contacted oh, well 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 but first of all my my six seven eight one nine three three is my phone and I don't answer my phone. So that's why I give you the number, but I answer my WhatsApp, you know? So, so 678-1933 is my WhatsApp number and anybody could WhatsApp me, but I don't answer my phone. And then of course my email is vnarayan at gmail.com. Leave out the same, V-N-A-R-A-Y-N at gmail.com. So I read my WhatsApp and my email, but hardly answer my phone. Um, because I don't like to talk too much. As you notice, I talk very little, right? <laughs> but, yeah. We want to thank Professor for being here today, for being educational and informative. I want to thank my co-host, Tosca, and for our listeners out there for tuning in to Freedom 106.5. Do have a great day. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5.